Thank you. I, I can't tell you how nice it is to be here, just to feel the uh, enthusiasm of the school. I was here in 1989, just briefly, and just to see your chapel, it's fantastic. I mean, you're very lucky to be here. So the talk is on Francisco de Vitoria, I should say Francisco de Vitoria OP, on the law of nations and the natural partnership of different peoples. So part of this is to be topical and up to date, but most of it isn't, so, so don't be too, too excited. Re recent political events in both Europe and North America have brought to the forefront issues surrounding free trade and immigration. Globalism, which was once seen as a means or even goal of social and political progress, has fallen under suspicion. The failure of Western powers to establish a stable peace in the Middle East has led to widespread doubt about not only the possibility, but also the moral legitimacy of military intervention in the internal affairs of sovereign states such as Syria. Although economic and technological developments have shaped these current difficulties, there are underlying conceptual problems which precede them. For instance, what counts as a sovereign state? Does an international organization such as the United Nations or the European Union have the right to punish sovereign states and to protect its citizens or even other citizens from tyranny? To what extent is an individual state justified in intervening between two other states? Would it ever have an obligation to do so? I will argue that Francisco de Vitoria's account of the law of nations in the context of the natural partnership of peoples sheds light on some of these problems even if he does not give us complete answers to the conceptual issues, and even though answers to these conceptual problems usually would not entail directly any particular policies or political decisions. So Vittoria, he was the Dominican originator of the 16th century Thomist revival in Spain at the University of Salamanca. He'd learned a little bit about Thomism in Paris, and he brought it back with him. Though he was a theologian, he held that the theologian had a responsibility to address a wide range of issues, among which what we would classify as legal and political philosophy. For our purposes, his most relevant works are lectures that he gave a set on the Spanish conquest of the Americas called On the American Indians, and another more general set called On the Law of War. Vittoria's concern for the proper treatment of the Native Americans, and in general, for the rule-governed nature of international relations, led James Brown Scott to call him the founder of the modern law of nations. Marcelo Sanchez Sarando writes, he proposes for the first time international law in modern terms, parting from the requirements of the social, cultural, and religious plurality of states. 
Despite these assessments, other scholars have pointed out that Victoria lacks some essential elements of contemporary international law. For example, in his time, there were no international courts or tribunals. Well, I mean, there was the papacy for those who wanted to appeal, but uh, not, not like now. Whatever the relevance of Victoria for international law, his work brings together a host of issues concerning the nature of sovereignty and the roles of borders, and in the particular, the way in which different sovereign states, so different distinct political communities, form part of one wider human community. This wider community is governed by a law or right of nations, which binds different rulers and states and can be enforced by individual states. This law of nations governs such actions as the reception of ambassadors, free passage, trade, and war. It will be helpful to first look at what this law of nations is in relation to other kinds of law, such as the natural law and the civil law of individual states. It will then be helpful to consider the law of nations in light of authority. Right, what authority establishes the law? What authority enforces it? Right, you think about law, what does law do? Coerces, commands, punishes. Then we can consider the law, content of the law of nations and how it is based on natural reason. We will see how Victoria's account of the law of nations was favorable to trade and immigration, although later scholastics criticized him on precisely these points. So what kind of law could govern the behavior of those who belong to different political communities? You're probably familiar with the part of the Summa Theologiae. This is the problem. Everybody, it's a very small part of Thomas's work. He very rarely talks about law, the kinds of law, natural law. Uh, he does so briefly in the Summa, but this is one of those texts that everybody knows, even though it's, it's uh, not typical for, for him. At any rate, in the Summa, he describes five kinds of law, namely the eternal law, natural law, human law, divine law, and the law of sin. The eternal law is God's ordering of the universe. The natural law is a human participation in this ordering. Right? Unlike other creatures that tend toward their end unknowingly, humans can deliberate about how to achieve their own good and the common good. This natural law governs all humans, but it is general and by itself has no obvious or, or apparent sanctions. Right? It tells us not to kill or steal, but it does not directly apply to many difficult cases or determine precisely what a punishment should be. It is promulgated in the human heart rather than by a human authority in a written or oral code. Human law derives from and determines this natural law. It corresponds most clearly to our ordinary notion of law and includes the civil law and perhaps even canon law. It determines the crimes and the punishments, at least in a way, and directs human actions towards the common good. And then the 
divine law was once the Mosaic law and is now the new law that is written in the hearts of Christians. And then last, the law of sin, which is less relevant to us, is not really a law. That's the sensuality we all have, or most of us, that inclines us away from reason. So these are the kinds of law. How would the law of nations fit in? Thomas is a little bit unclear. He does have a notion of the law of nations or the use gentium. Now, the, the word use in Latin can be tricky. Right? Two Latin words are sometimes used to indicate law, namely lex and use. The first only refers to law. Use, according to Thomas, generally indicates an objective right, you know, something that is due to another. That's what a use is. Although among later Thomas, not in Thomas, it can mean a subjective right or power. You know, I have a right to uh, this property or to use it a particular way. Sometimes use also indicates a kind of law, but not always, as when natural law or natural right is contrasted with the law or right of nations. Sometimes we're talking about the objective right, sometimes we're talking about the law when we say use naturale, use gentium. Roman jurists in the Christian tradition had included the law of nations, use gentium, as a kind of law distinct from both the natural law and seemingly the civil law. According to Justinian's Institutes, the law of nations and the civil law are distinguished as follows. All peoples with laws and customs apply law which is partly theirs alone and partly shared by all mankind. The law which each people makes for itself is proper to its own political community. But the law which natural reason makes for all mankind is applied the same everywhere. It is called the law of nations because it is common to every nation. Individual nations make their own laws. The law of nations includes either that which is common to every nation and also that which can govern interaction between nations. So what is it? Is it the natural law? How does it even fit in with Thomas's definition of law? Thomas gives four elements for law. That he finds law as a certain ordinance of reason for the common good by the one who has the care of the community and promulgated. So these four elements. The first element, that is an ordinance of reason, distinguishes Thomas's theory from other theories that would emphasize the binding power of the lawgiver's will. The end of the law, which is the common good, distinguishes it from an unjust command and draws our attention to the nature of the community in which it is based and to which it is directed. The third element of the definition emphasizes that it must be made someone by someone who has authority, care of the community. The fourth and last element indicates that this authority must make the law known to those who are bound by it. So this applies clearly to human law. Human law can be made only by someone with legitimate political authority. So if you think of the civil law of a particular community, Private individuals can suggest or direct action, but they cannot legislate. You would like to legislate sometimes. You'd like to say people who park in this spot ought to be beaten, but you can't. Right? According to Thomas and Aristotle, although the head of the family has authority over its members, he lacks the authority to pass laws. Right? 
Victoria notes, while the father may have the authority to beat his wife or his children, but this comes from the civil law. The family is an incomplete or imperfect natural community that depends on and is directed to the complete or perfect political community, right? Perfect in the sense of complete. So what is this perfect political community? That would presumably be the common good of the community whose common good this law is directed to. Aristotle emphasizes self-sufficiency and clearly has in mind the Greek city-state that ceased to exist during the Hellenistic period, more or less. Thomas himself was aware of various kinds of political organization and levels of authority, such as the Holy Roman Empire, kingdoms, and relatively autonomous cities. Vittori himself lived in the somewhat recently united kingdom of Spain. What kind of political unit has the authority to pass laws? According to Vittori, a relevantly complete community is one whole per se, and which is not part of another commonwealth, but has its own laws, its own independent policy, and its own magistrates, such as is the Kingdom of Castile and Aragon, and other similar ones. So this description might seem straightforward, legal system, a system of administration, independent policy. But in his time and ours, the criteria can be vague. For instance, in the just cited passage, Vittori mentions the Kingdom of Castile and Aragon as a complete kingdom. Nevertheless, he notes that the Duke of Alba and the Count of Benevente are parts of this kingdom. And yet they have the authority that a complete community has, such as that of making war. So even in his time, certain dukedoms would be able to pass laws and act like complete communities, although they would be parts of otherwise complete communities. Moreover, Vittori recognizes that cities such as Milan are subject to the Holy Roman Empire. So it's part of a wider community. Nevertheless, Milan itself is a perfect or complete community. Consequently, the Duke of Milan can declare war on his own without the emperor. Vittoria states that in these unclear cases, custom indicates the difference between a complete and incomplete community. But the original criteria that he gives, the legal system, the administration, the policy, seems to be based not so much on custom, but in the structure and properties of the relevant regimes. Now, despite these difficulties in determining the scope and authority for civil law, there are graver difficulties with respect to that law which governs behavior between political communities. Each complete political community has its own human laws that direct the action of its members to the common good of the particular community. What common good would the law of nations be directed to? What would count as an authority that could make the law of nations? How would such a law be promulgated? It's less clear how the four elements apply. Now, Thomas is thought in the law of nations, use gentium is sketchy and does not clearly account for the relationship between states. In fact, he does not seem entirely consistent about the relationship between the law of nations, positive law, and natural law. In his discussion of the law of nations in the Prima Secundae of the Summa Theologiae, Thomas indicates that the law of nations is a kind of human positive law that is distinct from the civil law. The law of nations here is derived from the natural laws, conclusions are derived from principles. 
For instance, the law of nations governs buying and selling, whereas the civil law determines the natural law by specifying the crimes, the punishments. You know, if you rip somebody off, you get such a this punishment or that fine. Whereas in this text, Thomas states that the law of nations is a kind of human law. He identifies it as part of the natural law later in the Secunda Secundae of the Summa Theologiae and in his commentary on the Nicomachean Ethics. In these two later texts, Thomas states that the law of nations or right of nations, it can be ambiguous, is natural even though sometimes it is derived from natural right. Part of the problem is the usage of the lawyers and that of Aristotle when it comes to describing uh, natural right. The jurists use natural right to describe laws that follow inclinations that are common to humans and the other animals. For example, laws that involve the joining of men and women and the educating of children belong to natural right, according to the jurists, according to Thomas. In contrast, the jurists call the right of nations that which governs humans insofar as they are rational. By the law of nations, agreements must be observed and legates kept safe. Thomas notes that both are natural in Aristotle's usage, since they rest on natural inclination and not in positive law. In this context, Thomas mentions the law of nations as natural law. He talks a little bit about the relation between states, but he does not develop an account of how the relevant rules could be developed or changed or in what way they might be enforced. So Thomas's text posed a problem for later Thomists. Unlike Thomas, Vittoria consistently describes the law of nations as including positive law. So it's not just the natural law, it's some positive law. In his commentary in the account of the law of nations in the Secunda Secundae of Thomas's Summa Theologiae, Thomas talks about this disagreement between the different uses of, of uh, natural right and the right of nations is between that common to animals and that common to rational beings. Ta Vittoria similarly emphasizes that the disagreement is a primarily just a verbal disagreement about how to use the terms, but Vittoria describes this verbal difference in a slightly different way. Like Thomas, Vittoria notes that jurists describe precepts to worship God or honor parents as belonging to the law of nations and not the natural law. But unlike Thomas, Vittoria contrasts the jurists not with Aristotle but with theologians. So he's appealing to theological usage at the time. According to the theologians, these precepts that follow rational nature, such as those that command the honoring of parents and the worship of God, are part of the natural law. In contrast, theologians restrict the law of nations to other precepts that do not immediately follow from natural law. Consequently, the jurists use the term law of nations to cover a broad set of natural law precepts, whereas the theologians use the term more properly and in a better way to describe a kind of positive law. Some people think, sometimes people think Vittoria is confused about is the law of nations positive law or natural law. Well, Vittoria just says that there's different usages and you can use both, but one is more proper. When we're talking about something that is a positive law, which then brings our question, who makes it? Who enforces it if it's a positive law? 
you know. So what, what is this positive law? In the same context, Vittorius states that just as in the case of other positive law, the law of nations can include what results from either private or public agreements. So it's not just something we derive from the natural law, but people can agree that something is part of the law of nations. The public agreements include what is consented to by all nations in order to protect natural law. For instance, the safety of ambassadors is necessary for nations and in order to avoid war. Life is a good of the natural law. So it would be hard to preserve the natural law without respecting ambassadors. Such laws do not follow necessarily from precepts of the natural law, since in that case they would simply belong to the natural law. Whereas what is naturally due involves a strict equality, what is due to the law of nations involves some sort of looser equality. And it's not just looser, because there's kind of, right, there's loose equality in a lot of the virtues related to justice. But a looser equality based on agreement or consent Nevertheless, there is a way in which the law of nations is necessary because natural right cannot be upheld without the law of nations. So this helps us keep in mind what is the law of nations when we're trying to think, what does it let us do? Who can enforce it? According to the jurors, the law of nations is simply that part of the natural law that belongs to what is specifically human, such as the ability to worship God or honor one's parents. According to the theologians, such precepts belong to the natural law. The law of nations is distinguished from the natural law insofar as it involves a notion of the due that is not determined by nature, but in some way by consent. This consent can be indicated by custom. That's a common medieval and Roman notion. When they talk about consent, they don't necessarily mean that you have a, a written thing and everybody signs to it. Just if something exists, and people live under it, they consent to it. The law of nations is necessary for following the natural law. So Vittoria seems to think of the law of nations primarily in the context of laws that govern different political communities and their rules. It's not based simply on an agreement between different perfect political communities the law of nations governs, or at least in part, governs all of the complete or perfect communities together insofar as they are part of the whole world. And this gets us to what is the law of nations? At least we can think about what it's directed to, which common good. It directs humans to the common good of all mankind. Victoria writes, the law of nations does not have the force merely of pacts or agreements between men, but has the validity of a positive enactment, lex. So it's an agreement, but it's not just an agreement. It's like a law under which agreements, different kinds of agreements are made possible. The whole world, which is in a sense a commonwealth, has the power to enact laws which are just and convenient or suitable to all men, and these are in the law of nations. From this it follows that those who break the law of nations, whether in peace or in war, are sinning mortally. 
at any case in the case of the greater transgressions, such as violating the immunity of ambassadors. No kingdom may choose to ignore the law of nations because it has the sanction of the whole world. So according to this account, the law of nations falls under Thomas's four-part definition of law. The community that makes it, it's the whole world through some sort of agreement. It's not just a private agreement, though. It's directed towards the common good of the political community. It's promulgated in custom or through different, different or in other ways. It's an ordinance of reason. The details, however, seem very unclear. In particular, Vittoria does not describe in detail how the whole world enacts the laws or enforces them. But the problem is there is no authority to enact such laws, but you have to have the laws. Right. And this is in contrast to some people at the time. There are some extreme proponents of the temporal power of the papacy and the universal authority of the Holy Roman Emperor. But Vittoria follows the mainstream Thomas tradition in holding that there is no temporal authority over the whole world. Right? The Holy Roman Emperor's powers are limited to the empire itself. Vittoria uses St. Thomas to argue that no political authority has universal dominion. Right? It's natural to have political communities but these political communities are independent of each other and themselves the result not of natural but of human law. It's natural to have political communities, but why you have one kind of government rather than another is due to human law and custom, not natural law. Similarly, with respect to the Pope, Vittori admits that he has universal spiritual authority and some temporal authority but he denies that the temporal authority extends beyond the papal states and then the extraordinary situations uh, you know, that people usually mention. Vittori compares the pope with the emperor when arguing that the pope lacks universal political authority. Proof of this is really quite simple, as it was in the case of the emperor above, because the pope cannot have any dominion except by natural, divine, or human law. But none of these laws grants the Pope temporal authority over the whole world. Right. There's, so there's no authority that can pass the law. Political authority produces law, human law, and it rests on human law. But there's no uh, plausible legal claim to, to say that there's one, one, one ruler. Right. This is in response to, remember, Alexander the Sixth. I mean, he did a lot of crazy things, but he claimed to divide the world between, the new world between Brazil and uh, Spain. Everybody recognized that this was ridiculous, right? The Pope doesn't have that authority, but, uh, you know, sometimes people will claim things like that, including popes, I guess, in this case. If no ruler has authority over the whole world, then how can international disputes or injuries be settled or punished. The Torah explains that a ruler of a political community has in certain contexts authority over foreigners who would not normally follow under his rule. The Torah understands a just war in this context. If there is an unjust injury or sufficiently grave violation of the law of nature, only a legitimate authority can avenge the injury. 
So it's strange. The same authority can both be part of the dispute and a judge of the dispute. Why? In cases within political communities, there is somebody above the disputants to whom they must appeal. But between political communities, there is no such higher authority. So some civil authority must step in. Not every act of injustice legitimizes such interference. In interference. Whereas some Spaniards had used the sins of Native Americans to justify the Spanish conquest, the Torah holds that the same arguments could be used to justify the conquest of Christians, since Christians themselves are also guilty of sodomy, fornication, and robbery. Now, there might be other sins that you can stop, but right, if you say that the Native Americans, they're all sodomites who also fornicate and steal from each other, well, why not have uh, Spain invade Italy or vice versa? Okay. All right. So every political community contains a fair amount of sin. Military intervention is justified only by grave evils and could be an account of the personal tyranny of the barbarians' masters towards their subjects or because of their tyrannical and oppressive laws against the innocent, such as human sacrifice practiced on innocent men or the killing of condemned criminals to provide food for cannibalism. Right, so this is exceptional. Right, it's not that he's against capital punishment, but we shouldn't justify our use of capital punishment by saying that we'd like to eat the people. <laughs> that calls for somebody to intervene. Okay? All right. I mean, he's not, in fact, he doesn't come down and he say that these things, in fact, justify the conquest of the Native Americans. He just states that it might make it legitimate. Vittorio's point is that anyone with political authority and ability can defend the innocent. Such a ruler does not need to appeal to the Pope or some international authority. The ruler who intervenes in such instances acts, as I mentioned, not only as a protector, but also as a judge. By the law of nations, and even by natural law, he can inflict penalties on the tyrant. Vittorio writes, the prince has the authority not only over his own people, but also over foreigners to force them to abstain from harming others. This is his right by the law of nations and the authority of the whole world. Indeed, it seems he has this right by natural law. The world could not exist unless some men had the power and authority to deter the wicked by force from doing harm to the good and the innocent. Yet those things which are necessary for the governance and conservation of the world belong to the natural law. So ultimately, the authority of the law of nations depends on the natural law, but, it, but the law of nations is distinct from it, like normal human law. Vittori's argument for this point draws on the same argument that Thomas gives to justify the use of deadly force by the political community. Right? The ruler of the political community, unlike a private citizen, has the authority to command the death of the guilty in order to achieve and protect the common good. Right? Not just in self-defense, but it's a good thing that you hang that person. You're trying to kill him. <coughs> The same political authority has the ability to harm both internal enemies by punishing criminals and external enemies through just wars. 
Vittorius surpasses Thomas by noting that there is similar need for protection from those who threaten the entire world. I add this paragraph because even Catholic students are often confused about this point, but it's an absolutely basic point for morals and political philosophy, this next point. Vittorius' argument can only be understood if we keep in mind the distinction between self-defense and punishment. A private person or group of persons can defend themselves from enemies, but they cannot punish their enemies. Once the threat has vanished, they cannot, as private citizens, exact vengeance. Only public authorities should punish them, right? So if a bunch of people attack Thomas Aquinas College, you can shoot guns at them, but you can't chase them down and kill them while they're running away, okay? However, it might be appropriate for the political community to put them in front of a firing squad, right? But not for you. Once they start running away as a private group, you, you, you do not have the right to shoot them because you aren't a public authority. Right? Unless it's delegated, like in cases of the uh, bandits or outlaws, right? But then the government says, everybody has the right to kill this person. Um, they did this with bandits in Italy, even in the American West, wanted dead or alive, right? But that's deputization of public authority. That's not the right of self-defense. Only a civil authority can do that. Similarly, if political communities related to each other merely as private individuals, then they would not be able to punish aggressors. Right? So if you're thinking of political communities and they can't, there's no law of nations, you'd have to stop fighting once the people are no longer a danger to you. Leaders would be obliged to cease their hostilities once the threat had ceased. But Vittoria notes that both the Maccabees in the Bible and Christian kings punish those who have been unjust. This ability to punish implies that they have an authority over the unjust foreigners that is similar to the authority that they normally have over their own citizens. Vittoria emphasizes that this authority to wage war should be exercised sparingly. Right? First, the ruler has less authority over foreigners than he has over his own citizens. You can't go around enforcing laws against theft in other countries. Second, the effects of war are so terrible that they will be disproportionate to most offenses. It is better to let most offenses go unpunished, offenses between countries. Nevertheless, given a sufficiently grave offense, rulers have the authority to act as judges even in their own case. This authority is based on the absolute need for someone to punish rulers who act unjustly. Injustice can take place between nations. Somebody needs to uh, regulate this, and private authorities don't have, don't have the, such ability. It has to be law-governed. This need indicates that the prince has authority over foreigners in the same way that the need to punish, pub, punish internal enemies indicates that the ruler of the political community has authority over his own citizens. So you have the authority to punish. But what authority makes and promulgates the law of nations? How do you know if you've violated it? 
The Tory thinks that the relevant laws are reasonable and have consent in the whole world, but he is unclear on what this consent could be. They are not mere deductions from natural law in the same way that in certain passages Thomas says that the law of nations is. According to Vittori, even though part of the law of nations remains the same over time, there are additions. The consistency and the development of these new laws seems to rest on their necessity and reasonableness and agreement. The typical example of a right that belongs to the nations, law of nations, is the immunity of ambassadors, which is recognized or should be recognized by all nations and has been so recognized from early times. There are cultures that do not recognize the immunity of ambassadors, but there's something very wrong with those cultures, right? Um, you know that they're just barbarians if they don't do that. Now, the communication and cooperation between different political communities would be severely impaired if ambassadors could be harmed. This cannot be based on the law of any one political community because it must be recognized by the communities that interact. Consequently, there is a widely recognized right of ambassadors that is based on an enforceable law that exists apart from any one political system. So this is something common in all times. But custom and changing custom indicates a consent that establishes something as part of the law of nations. Vittorian is on the law of war mentioned several cases in which the law of nations has developed so as to limit what might be done strictly according to natural law. For instance, by the natural law, enemy combatants who surrender can be punished by death since they have unjustly and gravely harmed the political community, right? They've done something unjust, worthy of death, so you can execute them. Um, or sell them into slavery if you don't want to execute them. Surrendering does not take away their guilt. But Vittori remarks, but as many practices in war are based on the law of nations, it appears to be established by custom that prisoners taken after a victory, when the danger is past, should not be killed unless they turn out to be deserters. The law of nations is indicated here not by deduction from the principles of natural law, but by considering actual practice. Actually, I don't mention this in the paper, but this is the practice among Christian nations. Among Saracens, you just kill them. But uh, I didn't put that in here. Okay. So there's, but it's an interesting point because there's different law of nations applying di differently. Um, Brian Tierney thinks that such texts conflict with those passages in which Vittorius states that the law of nations is established by consent. So here he's saying it's custom you don't kill the prisoners. Other passages he says there has to be some consent between the group. Seems to me that Vittorio merely is accepting the medieval and Roman view that long-standing custom presupposes some sort of consent. The very existence of such a practice indicates that the different nations have consented to this law. I mean, it's just, it's commonplace in medieval law. Sometimes a mitigate, oh, here I do mention it. Some mid type, well, in the context of uh, slavery and plunder. Sometimes a mitigating element of the law of nations applies only to some political communities. For instance, in wars with the Saracens, innocent non-combatants can be enslaved and plundered. Since enough compensation can never be taken to satisfy the injuries that have been received from the Saracens. 
But according to the law of nations, Christians cannot enslave other Christians. So it seems like there's a different law of nations. However, although the difference between Christians and Saracens seems primarily arbitrary and religious, Vittorio's reasoning is not based on religion, but on the kind of war involved. Wars between Christians are temporary and limited in the harm that they do. In contrast, it's a different kind of war with the Saracens. The Saracens are permanently at war with Christian nations. So the damages that can be claimed from the Saracens are far greater than those that can be claimed from Christian nations. Same way with um, killing the uh, captured prisoners. Uh, This permanent war that can never stop until you have victory justifies different behavior. In other cases, the law of nations makes licit an act that would otherwise be considered unjust under the natural law. For instance, since the purpose of war is to avenge an injustice, by the natural law, the victor has the right to take goods only in reparation for injuries and to pay the cost of the war. That's always what confused me about the Iraq war. People were complaining about it. I was thinking, how are we going to get them to pay for it? But it never comes up. I think after World War I, uh, we stopped doing that. Um, However, Vittorio writes, at least in the law of nations, all movable goods become the property of the captors, even if their value exceeds that of the compensation of losses. So the idea is that the victors can take movable goods such as money and material goods, even in addition to what they are owed, but they must not take towns or forts. This aspect of the law of nations is not rooted in any reasoning about the natural law. It's not a direct deduction from the natural law. Vittoria shows that it comes from Roman law, canon law, and later Christian practice. Again, the law of nations is not determined by any international decision-making body, but rather by the law and practice of different nations. Perhaps Vittoria's most controversial use of the law of nations is in his On the American Indians, in which he argues that the natural partnership and communications of peoples might justify the Spanish conquest of the Americas. And this is interesting. Vittoria, to some extent, bases his argument on aspects of the law of nations that were already recognized in Roman law. However, he also invokes the common scholastic view that all goods were common before the fall and the subsequent division of mankind into different political units. This natural community of mankind, community of good, and then this original unity, makes hospitality to strangers one of the most important duties of the law of nations. The right to travel, the Jus Peregrinandi, is related and must be applied impartially to members of different nations. Vittoria writes, it would not be lawful for the French to prohibit Spaniards from traveling or even living in France or vice versa, so long as it caused no sort of harm to themselves. Therefore, it is not lawful to banish visitors who are innocent of any crime. Right? So you have to treat people equally from different countries, and you have a right to travel through the country. You need to get somewhere. Injuries against travelers, in fact, are considered to be injuries against the traveler's own countries, and consequently a just cause for war on behalf of the injured countries. So if the Indians were interfering with the Spaniards' ability to travel through the Americas freely, 
that's an injury on behalf of which the Spanish could wage war against the Indians. Vittori mentions several related parts of the law of nations that are recognized either in Roman law or follow from natural law. First, Roman law recognized that ships from different countries could put into any port. Second, the natural partnership of peoples entails a right to trade for mutual benefit. It's beneficial to trade, therefore you can't keep people out of your country from, if they want to trade goods in your country. Third, goods held in common, such as gold in the earth or pearls in the ocean, are equally available to members of the political community and to those from outside. There's a notion kind of a finder's keepers in Roman law and Vittori and some others apply it to everybody. So if you are a Spaniard and you find gold in the New World, it's yours because you found it. Uh, these are goods under the ground. I'm not sure why under the ground matters so much, but this is part of the, of the discussion, that it's under the ground. I think it's because it's harder to see, and so somebody has to do something to find it. It's like uh, before the fall or before the community, the, the state of innocence, or if Adam had had people picking pears off of trees or apples off of trees, the apples would be common to everybody, but once you pick them off, then they become the property of the person who picks them, and the other person is stealing if they take them. That's kind of a thing you come across sometimes. Okay. Um, so these goods are owned by those who find them, even if they are foreigners. Fourth, since every human by nature is a political animal, he has the right to join other political communities, and his children have a right to citizenship if born there. Right? So this is interesting. I have a son born in Germany. In Vittoria's view, he has German citizenship or has a right to it. Otherwise, such children would not have any nation. According to Vittoria, the Native Americans injured the Spaniards on each of these accounts and consequently may, he doesn't say they have, may have thereby justified the Spanish conquest. Vittoria's enumeration of these aspects of natural partnership indicates the way in which human beings are not only essentially political, but also part of a local community and one that includes the whole human race. Vittori generally qualifies the obligations connected with such partnership with the, with the, with the kind of uh, qualifications like the one mentioned above, so long as it caused no harm to themselves. So you're supposed to allow free passage unless it harms your community to do so. And which then the question is, well, what does that mean? This text is important. It greatly influenced Hugo Grotius, the real kind of in, the, the authority on international law, his own defense of the rights of travel, trade, and access to the seas. Nevertheless, Vittori's arguments did not establish nor were meant to establish or indicate that these rights are unlimited. Scholars have often pointed out that later writers criticized Vittori's understanding of the right to travel and commerce, but the scholars are unclear about whether the criticism is directed against Vittori's understanding of what the law of nations in fact holds, or whether there is a criticism of Vittori's application of the law of nations in a particular case. 
So I just try to indicate how the successors criticized him on both, both counts. Right? It's an important point. Is, is he misunderstanding what belongs to the law of nations, or is, it, is he just not applying it? Vittoria's fellow Dominican, Melchor Cano, accepts that there is a right to travel, but he directly criticizes the Spanish claim that the Native Americans violated this right. So this is a matter of fact. Did the Spaniards violate the right? Ken simply remarks that if the Spanish could be described as travelers, then so could Alexander the Great and his conquest. Right? <laughs> Alexander the Great was just trying to invoke his right to free passage. No. But, but that is important because the disagreement between Cano and Vittoria in this point is not over whether there's a right to travel freely, but over its application to the conduct of the Spanish in the free world, in the new world. Similarly, the Jesuit Francisco Suarez writes that one cause of war is if another prince denies the common right of nations without a reasonable cause, as in the transit of travelers, common commerce, etc. Right? So if you violate the right of travel even in Vittoria, that can be a reason to declare war. So if we violate Mexicans or Canadians' right to travel through the United States, Mexico or Canada could declare war on us. You might say good luck, but it's just a question abstract of justice. Okay. But this right to travel, as he and Vittoria admits, it's limited by the needs of the political community. For instance, in his discussion of faith, Suarez states that Christian rulers can, for a just reason, prevent unbelievers from living in or traveling in Christian lands. The point is, you have to give a reason to prevent the travel. So the Christian rulers can limit the right to travel and live only to protect their own political community. Okay. Suarez and Vittoria do not disagree, therefore, over general principles, but over maybe some of the applications. The Dominican Domingo de Soto, like Vittoria, defends the right to travel to an unusual extent. In a work of almsgiving, Soto defends at length the right of beggars to travel and beg across borders, assuming that no injury is done. So he's concerned, for instance, that Spanish beggars might not be able to beg in France, or French beggars might not be able to beg in Spain. On the other hand, Soto directly criticizes Vittoria's account of the right of foreigners to goods that are held in common. Soto appeals to the recognized practice that the local community has dominion over them. It would be illicit for the French to take natural goods, such as gold from Spain, even though it's under the earth, just as it would be for the Spanish to take gold from the French. Taking goods in this way is theft. So he's not disagreeing that this behavior is governed by the law of nations, but he says Vittoria is misapplying what nations have consented to. Whether you go to the New World or France, you aren't allowed to just take whatever gold you dig up. The Jesuit Luis de Molina similarly criticizes Vittoria's appeal to the actual practice of different nations. Whereas Vittoria used Roman law to argue that waterways and natural goods in the earth are common, Molina argues that everyone recognizes that they belong to a political community. So it's an appeal to what people commonly recognize again. 
He notes that the kings of Spain and Portugal prohibit foreigners to fish for sea carp near their shores. And in general notes the conflict with this in different countries. It's not open to everybody. They regulate trade, they regulate fishing. On Vittoria's view, fish would seem to be common and the political authorities would lack the ability to regulate fishing unless there's some sort of grave reason. Soto and Molina argue for a different general thesis, that even common natural goods belong to the communities that govern them. So here they criticize not only Vittoria's application of the law of nations, but also his view of what the law of nations contains. So we've got, I think, some important remarks about his, some important remarks about the relations between nations, that the rule governed, that there's no authority above the nations, that there has to be an authority that enforces them. And then there are just inherent problems in recognizing what these laws are and how to apply them. I don't know if the problem is Vittoria's, it might just be inherent to the subject. Whether or not Vittoria is justly described as the father of international law, his academic position and political situation make it possible for him to develop more carefully than his predecessors an account of the way in which different political communities and their rulers are bound by the law of nations. Right? They had to discuss it at length because of the debates over the Indies. And I mean, some of the uh, I guess there were three sets of laws mitigating the treatment of the Native Americans in the 16th century, or in part, in part due to his uh, discussion. Um, it seems to me that his conceptual framework can be applied to our current context, in which there are a variety of different sovereign states and communities, such as the European Union, which also claims sovereignty. To a large extent, the relations between these different communities must be governed by common practice and custom, and ultimately rooted in recognition of a worldwide community of human beings. But there is no one institution, not even the United Nations, which can claim the authority by itself to create binding laws or judge between nations. Sovereign states may agree to submit themselves to a kind of arbitration or agreement. But otherwise, the ruler of a sovereign state must be both the prosecutor and judge for disputes between political communities. It is dangerous for the belligerents themselves to have public authority, but in both Victoria's day and in ours, there is no other option. And the world community needs rulers to punish injuries in order for humankind to flourish. Now, that being said, although it seems to me that Victoria's conceptual framework remains valid, it does not seem to me that it gives many concrete answers for today's problems concerning immigration and globalization. He does remind us that humans share a common nature and good, and that there is a natural partnership among peoples in achieving their common good. These considerations by themselves are in favor of freer immigration policies and trade. Nevertheless, even Victoria recognizes that political rulers may limit travel and trade if there is a serious reason to do so. And other writers pointed out that Vittoria overlooks the common custom of nations in limiting access to goods such as precious metals and fish. Moreover, in Vittoria's own account, the law of nations develops over time. 
Consequently, present policy debates should take into account current practices and international agreements, as well as economic, political, and cultural effects. So reading Victoria does not give us any policy prescriptions, but it does provide us at least with some conceptual framework with which to think of different sovereign states as participating in a wider community that is governed by law. But according to Victoria, this community is based on the shared humanity, not only of Spaniards and Frenchmen, but even Saracens and the Native Americans of the New World.